Boring World. Hi, everybody. Hi, everyone. I'm Stephanie. And I'm Sarah. And this is Dead Time Stories. A weekly podcast where Sarah and I get together to talk about ghost stories, true crime, mysteries, cults, conspiracies, the supernatural, paranormal, or just the generally weird, eerie, spooky, strange stuff that we want to talk about that week. Why is that, Sarah? Uh, Because it's our show. And, and not yours. If this is your first time listening to the podcast, you should stop. Stop. Go back to the beginning. Start at episode one. Grumble forth in my mouth a little bit. Just a little bit. You want to follow us on this journey. You want to start at the beginning. You don't want to play the guesswork of trying to know who we are at this stage in our life. You want to follow that. You want to start from the beginning. Follow the journey of our lives. Follow us through this mess of the last four years. Follow the downward spiral. And then maybe catch up and be like, oh my God, what do I do now? I'm all caught up. And that's when you start to start message us. Start back at the beginning. Oh, yes. And, and, you know, start at the beginning again. <laughs> Just binge it over and over again, like your favorite TV show. Sarah, how are you doing this week? How was your play the last two weekends? Hmm. Well, I it was good. I was trying to think of the timing if I still had another weekend, but I don't. But you don't, right? I that don't. was the last two weekends. Yep. Two weekends. When is your good. Reader's Theater thing? Uh, August 6th. August 6th. Yep. Okay. Saturday, August 6th. So come check that shit out. Philadelphia Women's Theater Fest. Because from when this episode comes out, if this calendar is correct, I don't know what day it is. I don't. Um, don't ask me that. This episode comes out the week before. All right. Um, it comes out. If you're listening today, it should be August 28th. So you should go see her show next weekend. Oh, or no, sorry. July. It's July 28th. So you should be seeing her next week. Yeah, just a little ditty. You said August 4th is a Saturday? August 6th. Oh, say. I was like, August 4th is a Thursday, girl. No, no, August no, no. 6th, next weekend, you should go see Sarah at the Reader's Theater thing. Yeah, check it out. It's a, it's a whole Philadelphia Women's Theater Festival. Directed by Shannon, this piece. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. Love that for you. Yeah, I got that going, and then otherwise I just really, really want some time off. That's Man. really all I want. Here's I I say that, but I, mean, I also I keep know accepting things coming up that I'm yeah I will soon be starting <laughs> with Halloween nights and Oof. being an operations manager of the Speakeasy Band. Yeah, Mr. Manager. If you're listening to this, if you're interested, we are still taking tons of people. They take people for all kinds of applications. If you look on the Halloween nights website, but specifically, if you're interested in auditioning for the Speakeasy, the last audition is coming up next two weeks from now. It's coming up on August 9th. It is a okay. Tuesday. That is the next Speakeasy audition. So if you're a Philly person and you want to work specifically in the Speakeasy and you want to have a singing audition rather than trying to have a scary audition where they make you roll on the round, uh, roll on the ground and try and be scary. If you're auditioning as a singer, they just have you sing. And your next opportunity to do that is Tuesday, August 9th <laughs> at Eastern State Penitentiary to come audition for the Speakeasy. Come work with me. It's a but, fun gig. But you won't be auditioning for me. You will be auditioning for Shannon, who is amazing and wonderful, and the other manager. She's the theatrical manager. I'm the operations manager. But tell them Stephanie sent you, and come audition to be in a Speakeasy. They'll and know what that means. even if you don't do any of that, come to Halloween nights this season, because I'm fucking managing the Speakeasy. Yeah, she is. And it's going to be cool. It's going to be great. I also can't wait for Guestoberfest. We're doing special, exciting things this year, and we'll tell you more about that soon. We have a few months, though. We have a few months. We do. Yeah, we've got two August. Months. Yeah, but I've got I've got Ooh. big, exciting things, and yeah, we, we try to plan Guestoberfest before yeah October. So we're getting into it now. Get into it, yeah. We try making we our try. plans. I'm really excited. Yeah, it's all gonna be good. You ready to fucking do? this? I am so ready to do this. Oh, hold on, I have to burp. I think it's a cough. I don't know what's happening. <coughs> all right, bless you. Thank you.
Hey, Sarah. Hey, Stephanie. Hey, Leslie. Y'all ready to talk about some ghosts? Y'all ready to talk about some ghosts? Would you like to go first this week, Sarah? Yeah. What are you so talking about? I'm not talking about a ghost, but Ooh. I'm talking about a sweet little Nebraska. I guess I would call him a town favorite, a town celebrity. Um, okay. This is the story of Andy the Goose. Okay. And I'm going to show you a picture of Andy the Goose because Andy the Goose was known for one specific the thing, one specific thing, and that's because Andy the Goose. Wore little shoes. See, I thought you were going to say Andy the Goose, who was not a goose, but he's definitely a goose. But he's he just the has goose. Shoes on. He's not the person. He's the now, goose. Now is he a? He's a real goose. He's a real goose. So Andy the Goose was a precious little goose that was born without his webbed feet, and so he could he have like talons. He had just like little deformed, like like chickeny feet, rather little, than like webbed dug feet. I don't know. Feet. There aren't any pictures of his right. actual feet. There's he's just because he's always wearing shoes on. Yeah. yeah, they've always got paid. That's what he's known for. But he shoes. was able to walk. He just struggled with walking because I think he didn't have. It wasn't the a dexterity. Full foot. It was like a little. Nubbin. I don't want to call it a duck clubbed foot, but it was probably like a club. Maybe foot. the equivalent of a clubbed foot for a duck. Sure. Yeah, just no webbed feet. But both feet. Both of them. Yeah, I wore the shoes. So, he was born in 1987 without his little webbed feeties. I was born in 1987 without webbed feet. Aw, just like Andy the Goose. Just like Andy. Did you get a little pair of Converse? I did, a little pair of pink Converse, just like that. Andy actually preferred Nikes, but mm-hmm. sometimes Converse would pay money to like have pictures. Sure, of yeah, they'd sponsor him. They'd sponsor Andy the Goose. So, when Andy was two years old, uh, trying to hobble his way around the farm... Uh, a nearby neighbor named Gene Fleming came by, and he saw this precious little goose hobbling behind his little pack, trying so hard to keep up. Little guy. And he thought, you know what? I think I can help that little guy. He just needs some shoes. And that's because Gene Fleming himself was an inventor and a member of a local charity for disabled children. And so he was like, you this. know what? I love everything about this story. I think I can help I Andy. I can help that little disabled duck right there. So he took Andy and he took Andy's mate. He took Andy and he took, took Andy's, Andy's mate. mate. Polly. Say that five times fast. So, but he also took his girlfriend, his long-term live-in girlfriend. So he had a whole bunch of different prototypes. How are we going to make Andy walk again? Different prosthetics. He had a skateboard-like prosthetic that I think he tried on him, so maybe something with, like, wheels. And then finally, Gene made the specially adapted baby-sized shoes. So he basically took little baby shoes, added a little extra padding where they needed, and then he taught Andy to walk in them. And Andy... Could walk in them. And Andy loved his little duck it, shoes. Because Andy could finally walk walk. I love it. He was I like, I'm a man about him. town. I love that for little Andy. Well, yeah. then subsequently, Andy caught the attention of the media and the neighborhood. Because when you see a goose walking around the neighborhood in little shoes, in little you gotta shoes. ask. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And a sportswear manufacturer offered a lifetime deal to supply shoes for Andy. And he needed shoes because that bird was a walking bird. And he went through a pair of shoes in about a month. So he needed some shoes. Well, so, he was like, now that I can walk with these shoes, I'm going to fuck it. And these shoes are made for walking. And that's just what and they'll do. And that's just what I'm going to do. So Andy became a role model. He went out, and especially for disabled children. So he would go out and he'd go around and be like, "I look, I have my little extra help. Like, and it helps I'm me I'm differently walk. abled, too. I can do it. And I, with his and my shoes, special shoes. 
With his shoes, Andy was able to walk, swim, and fly. And his owners hoped that Andy's mobility would give hope to other people with disabilities. I love and they that. took him to kids, and kids loved him. I bet they did. So Andy, I'm was... a grown up, and I love him, and I've never even met him. I know he's just a precious baby. Andy was born in ni- uh, Andy was born in 1987, and he lived there with Gene Fleming and his wife on their family farm. And unfortunately, in 1991. Gene and his wife got a phone call. It's a phone call that every goose owner dreads. Yeah. And the person on the line said, is Andy okay? Trigger warning for animal Andy cruelty. Okay. Andy, is he okay? Is he okay? Is he okay, Andy? Andy? No. 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 A couple of Hastings residents had been out. Hastings was the name of the town. A couple of residents had been out metal, metal detecting in the local park because this was 1991. And they had found a dead goose sporting Andy's telltale sneakers. Mm-hmm. The Flemings rushed out to the hutch where they kept Andy, and they found that both Andy and, and Polly. Polly were missing. Again, another big trigger warning. Andy wasn't just murdered, but Andy had been found dead in the park with his wings and his head removed. Oh my God. This, of course, made the local news. People, like national news, Um, a story about a community that rallies around a footless goose has almost everything you could ask for. Then you add in a murder mystery, and that is headline fever. Reporters pull no punches, veering from grisly to maudlin in mere paragraphs. People said that he was found in a heap. He was decapitated. He was skinned. Not always true. Did they ever find Andy's killer? No. I don't like this story anymore. So what ended up happening, though, long after the glitzy reporters left town, long after the tide of sympathy cards trickled, the people of Hastings kept looking for answers. The Chamber of Commerce set up a reward fund that raised somewhere around $10,000 in 1991, which today is the equivalent of just under 20000 about $19,895. Yeah. They raised to find the perpetrator and Andy's killer. As of 1993, the town sheriff quoted saying Andy's case is still open and that his department followed up on every tip and they were still feeling the shock of this murder. Gene buried little Andy quietly in his backyard, the site of their first romp together, Gene and Andy. And Gene's daughter Jessica says that not long after Andy's passed, Andy passed, Gene himself started showing signs of Alzheimer's. She's quoted as saying, in retrospect, I think it was Andy who had kept him here with us for a lot longer. Yeah. Gene himself passed away in 2000 at a nursing home in Nebraska. Jessica says he definitely did not get closure. But a few years ago, Jessica found herself thinking more and more about Andy. And she began combing through her grandparents' piles of documentation, fan mail, crime scene photos, um, and other meticulously kept notebooks. She called around to key players. And intriguing inconsistencies began to emerge, particularly around the case's status as unsolved. Because some people had been saying that the perpetrator had been found years later. So like years after the murder happened, the perpetrator was found, but no one said anything about it. 
A recent call to the former Chamber of Commerce President Dan Reynolds confirmed this. He says, about two years after the murder, someone from the sheriff's department called and said, well, we found out who did it, but we can't tell you and we don't want to have any news release about it. He said, we didn't know what to do. So finally, the Chamber of Commerce donated that $10,000 um, to kids projects and other charitable contributions for children and disabled children in the area. The department, he said, the sheriff's department, had told him that Andy's killer was somebody that was not responsible, suggesting that perhaps they were mentally disabled mm -hmm. or not all there, otherwise not in control of their actions. We can't know for sure what Andy the Goose would have wanted, Jessica says, but it probably wasn't to cast undue scrutiny or blame onto a disabled person. But Jessica, the daughter, is currently working on a documentary about Andy's life. I love that. And death. And she agrees. She says, I am not interested in the name of the person anymore. I wouldn't want retribution against that person or their family. I just want to know why. Yeah. And that's the tale of Andy the Goose and his short-lived but very impactful little career I, of being like watch this a support Andy. goose. Andy the Goose and, and his un his poor untimely demise that he didn't deserve because he was a loved member of the Fleming family. Like they, Gene really loved him I and took care of him. And he's there's so many pictures you it can see online like of him. Like a really special relationship. Him and his little shoes. Yeah, his little walking shoes. So I'm sorry it's sad, but hopefully it's also uplifting. Because if a little Andy can walk in his shoes and make the best out of his life, we can try too. Thanks, Andy. Thanks, Andy the Goose. Well, Stephanie, what are you talking about this week? Dancing mania! What? Do you say dicks and mania? No, I said dancing mania. Dancing mania. Oh, is this about the town that danced till they died? End of the episode. <laughs> the end. Um, so the article. There's more to it. There's more to it. The article about them, um, about that town. Uh, so you're thinking of the dancing plague of Strasbourg in 1518. Mm -hmm. But it's not the only dancing plague. So I was like, let's learn some more. But that is the most famous one. Yes. Did it, did it have the most casualties? Is that why? I think so, yeah. Okay. Mm -hmm. So um, dancing mania also known as Dancing Plague. When you say Dancing Mania, it sounds like it's going to be um, a cable network show on like VH1 that's mm. like a, a competition. Mm, I, I can see that. Um, also known as Dancing Plague. This is my favorite. Choreo Mania. Oh, that's great. St. <laughs> John's Dance, Tarantism, or St. Vitus's Dance. Hmm. And it was a social phenomenon that occurred primarily in mainland Europe in the 14th uh, through 17th centuries. So, like, over a couple hundred years. And it hasn't happened since. It had, like, a few instances I then. mean, it's like the witch trials, really. Like, right? Like, it was like, there's a couple hundred years where they were just, like, really into killing women and saying that they were witches until that just went out of style, I guess. Yeah. So, I guess dancing yourself to death just went out of style in the 17th century. It wasn't cool anymore. To do. None of the cool kids are doing it. So, basically, it involved groups of people dancing erratically, sometimes thousands of people at a time. Wow. The mania affected adults and children who danced 
danced until they collapsed from exhaustion and injuries. I thought that was called Woodstock of, what was that, 99? Well, that's the end of Midsummer, right? That's how she becomes the May Queen, and she's they all tumble, fall down. They've been dancing so long, and she's the last one up. That's how she wins. The mania affected adults and children who danced until they collapsed from exhaustion and injury. One of the first major outbreaks was in Aachen in the Holy Roman Empire, which is now modern-day Germany. Um, but the Holy Roman Empire was everywhere at that time. In 1374, it quickly spread throughout Europe. One particularly notable outbreak occurred in Strasbourg in 1518 in Alsace, also in the Holy Roman Empire. But that part is now France. Mm, mm, mm. <laughs> okay, okay. So it affected thousands of people across several countries, or across several centuries, and dancing mania was not an isolated event. Like, people just know about the dancing plague in, in Strasbourg, but that's not the only time that that ever happened. That, to me, is what's the weirdest part. Yeah. Um, <laughs> uh, and it's well documented in contemporary reports. It was nevertheless poorly understood, still is, and remedies were based on guesswork. Oftentimes, musicians accompanied dancers due to the belief that music would treat the mania because they could just get all the dance out to the music. But this tactic actually the sometimes... Reaction, they were like, ooh, I got the fee. I well, got cabin fee. It sometimes backfired because then it encouraged other people to start dancing. And then they would just all keep dancing. I got it too. There is doing. no consensus among modern day scholars as to the cause of dancing mania. That's what's scary. Yeah. No one knows. I don't know. The several theories that proposed range from religious cults being behind the processions to people dancing to relieve themselves of stress and put the poverty of the period out of their minds. It's speculated to have been a mass psychogenic illness in which physical symptoms with no known physical cause are observed to affect a group of people as a form of social influence. So dancing mania is derived from the term choreomania, which I love more. It's more fun. Choreomania! From the Greek choros, which means dance, and mania, which means madness. And is also known as dancing plague. The term was coined by Paracelsus, who was like an old doc. He's like the first doctor. He's up there with Hippocrates, you know, who wrote the oath. And the condition the oath that almost none of them keep the oath that they're supposed to do, and the condition was initially considered a curse by sent by a saint, usually Saint John the Baptist or Saint Vitus, which is why sometimes it's called Saint Saint John's dance or, or Saint okay. Vitus's dance. Victims of dancing mania often ended their processions at places dedicated to that saint, who was prayed to in an effort to end the dancing. Please, incidents often broke out around the time of the feast of Saint Vitus. Hmm. St. Vitus's dance was diagnosed in the 17th century as Sydenham Chorea. Dancing mania has also been known as an epidemic chorea and epidemic dancing. A disease of the nervous system, chorea is characterized by symptoms resembling those of dancing mania, which has also rather unconventionally been considered a form of epilepsy. Other scientists have described dancing mania as a collective mental disorder, collective hysterical disorder, or mass madness because it affects multiple a people whole group. Yeah. yeah so let's talk about outbreaks with s plural outbreaks of dancing mania cuz there's been more than one the earliest known outbreak of dancing mania occurred in the 7th century and it reappeared many times across europe until about the 17th century when it stopped abruptly 
One of the earliest known incidents occurred sometime in the 1020s in Bernburg, where 18 peasants began singing and dancing around a church, disturbing a Christmas Eve service. <laughs> yeah, because fuck them. Further outbreaks occurred during the 13th century, including one in 1237, in which a large group of children traveled from Erfurt to Arnstadt, which is about 12 miles Jumping and dancing the whole way. 12 miles, 20 kilometers for our UK listeners. Wow. And in marked similarity, like they were all dancing, um, similar to the legend of the Pied Piper, right? A legend that originated around that same time. Hmm. Another incident in 1278 involved about 200 people dancing on a bridge over the River Meuse, resulting in the bridge collapsing. Many of the survivors were restored to full health at a nearby chapel dedicated to St. Vitus. The first major outbreak of the mania occurred in 1373 and 1374, with incidents reported in England, Germany, and the Netherlands. On the 24th of June, 1374, one of the biggest outbreaks began in Aachen, before spreading to other places such as Cologne, Flanders, Franconia, Haunet, Metz, Strasbourg, which is the really famous one, Tongren, Utrecht, which these are all German-sounding places, right? And regions and countries such as Italy and Luxembourg. Further episodes occurred in 1375 and 1376 with incidents in France, Germany, and the Netherlands. And in 1381, there was an outbreak in Augsburg. Further incidents occurred in 1418 in Strasbourg, where people fasted for days and the outbreak was possibly caused by exhaustion. So they didn't eat and then they danced like crazy. And then they got crazy, yeah. In another outbreak in 1428 in Schaufhausen, a monk danced to death. And in the same year, a group of women in Zurich were reportedly in dancing frenzy. Another of the biggest outbreaks occurred in July 1518 in Strasbourg, mm-hmm. which is, that's the dancing the plague one. of 1518 that people hear about, where women began dancing in the street and between 50 to 400 people joined in. Wow. Further, what a rager. Right? Further incidents occurred during the 16th century when the mania was at its peak. In 1536 in Basel, involving group of children and 1551 in Anhalt involving just one man. In the 17th century, incidents of recurrent dancing and recorded by Professor of Medicine Gregor Horst, who noted several women who annually visit the Chapel of St. Vitus in Drelfelhausen dance madly all day, all night, until they collapse in ecstasy. That didn't sound bad. I know, right? In this way, they come to themselves again and feel little or nothing until the next May when they are, again, forced around St. Vitus Day to betake themselves to that place. One of these women is said to have danced every year for the past 20 years, another for a full 32. Dancing mania appears to have completely died out by the mid-17th century. According to John Waller, although numerous incidents were recorded, the best documented cases are the outbreaks of 1374 and 1518, for which there is abundant contemporary evidence. The outbreaks of dancing mania varied, and several characteristics of it have been recorded, generally incurring in times of hardship, up to tens of thousands of people would appear to dance for hours, days, and even months. Wow. Women have often been portrayed in modern literature as the usual participants in dancing mania, although contemporary sources suggest otherwise. Whether the dancing was spontaneous or an organized event is also debated. These were like the first flash mobs. I was going to say it's a flash mob. What is certain, however, is that dancers seem to be in a state of unconsciousness and unable to control themselves. 
Huh. In his research into spe- into social phenomenon. And we're sure they're all dancing and they're not just having seizures and no one is helping them. Well, and that's why it said, like, some of it has been linked to, like, a form of epilepsy, where, like, they thought it was epilepsy. Like, is this a seizure or is mm-hmm. this, are you Elaine from Seinfeld? <laughs> I don't know if you See, I want to know, know what dances. their dance moves were like. Me too. I really want to know too. what the dance moves were. In his research into social phenomena, author Robert Bartholomew notes that contemporary sources record the participants often did not reside where the dancing took place. Such people would travel from place to place and others would join them along the way. With them, they brought customs and behavior that were strange to the local people and their new dance moves. It's a festival. Bartholomew describes how dancers wore strange, colorful attire and held wooden sticks. This is Coachella. (laughs) They're describing the first Coachella or Burning Man. Robert Marx, in his study of hypnotism, notes that some decorated their hair with garlands. However, not all outbreaks involved foreigners and not all were particularly calm. Bartholomew notes that some paraded around naked and made obscene gestures. Burning man. Some even had sexual intercourse. Woodstock. Others acted like animals. Woodstock of 99. And jumped. And I don't know. I don't know. All of the above. Hopped, leaped, and hopped and leaped about. Oh, that's just the Easter parade. They hardly stopped and some danced until they broke their ribs and subsequently died. How did they break their ribs from dancing? Falling? I imagine they're just like jerking too hard and somebody bumps so the into somebody. So back then. Somebody moshes a little too hard and cracks somebody else's rib. That's what they were and doing. And back then you died of a broken rib. Yeah. If you had a broken rib, that was they just, put you down. just dead. They put you down. <laughs> Uh, Throughout, dancers screamed, laughed, or cried, and some sang. Bartholomew also notes that observers of dancing mania were sometimes treated violently if they refused to join in. Oh, no. Participants demonstrated odd reactions to the color red. In History of Madness in the 16th Century Germany, Middlefort notes that they could not perceive the color red at all. And Bartholomew reports it was said that dancers could not stand the color red, often becoming violent upon seeing it. Bartholomew also notes that dancers could not stand pointed shoes and that dancers enjoyed their feet being hit. Which I don't know what they mean by hit. I'm like, you mean like stepped on? Through, uh, throughout, those affected by dancing mania suffered from a variety of ailments, including chest pains, convulsions, hallucinations, hyperventilation, epileptic fits, and visions. In the end, most simply dropped down, overwhelmed with exhaustion. Middlefort, however, describes how some ended up in a state of ecstasy. Typically, the mania was contagious, but it often struck small groups such as families or individuals. Was there something in their food? Like a bacteria that was like a drug, and so they went on a trip, and some of them went on a bad trip, and some of them had a good trip? So... You asked a question. We're going to talk about what was going on in one specific area with dance mania. Now, this is not all dance mania, but this is this particular case. In Italy, a similar phenomenon was called Tarantism, in which the victims were said to have been poisoned by tarantula or scorpion venom. Its earliest known outbreak was the 13th century, and the only antidote known was to dance to a particular music to separate the venom from the blood. At least that's what they believed. It occurred only in the summer months. As with dancing mania, people would suddenly begin to dance, sometimes affected by a perceived bite or sting, and then they were joined by others who believed the venom from their old bites would be reactivated by the heat or the music. 
Dancers would perform a tarantella accompanied by music, which would eventually cure the victim, at least temporarily. Mm. Some participated in further activities, such as tying themselves up with vines and whipping each other, pretending to sword fight, drinking large amounts of wine, and jumping into the sea. Kinky. (laughs) Some died if there was no music to accompany their dancing. What? That's sufferers, so weird. I know, sufferers typically had symptoms resembling those of dancing mania, such as headaches, trembling, twitching, and visions. As with dancing mania, participants apparently did not like the color black instead of red, the people that had mm-hmm. the venom. The venom. And women were reported to be the most affected. Unlike dancing mania, tarantism was confined to Italy and southern Europe. It was common until the 17th century, but ended suddenly with only very small outbreaks in in Italy until as late as 1959. Whoa, that was like 20 years ago. (laughs) (laughs) A study of the phenomenon in 1959 by religious history professor Ernesto De Martino revealed that most cases of tarantism were probably unrelated to spider bites. Many participants admitted that they had not been bitten, but believed that they were infected by someone who had been, or that they had simply touched a spider. The result was mass panic, with a cure that allowed people to behave in the ways that were normally prohibited at the time. (laughs) Despite their differences, tarantism and dancing mania are often considered synonymous. Yeah. As the real cause of dancing mania was unknown, many of the treatments for it were simply hopeful guesses. Oh, no. Although some did seem effective. The 1374 outbreak occurred only decades after the Black Death and was treated in a similar fashion. Dancers were isolated and some were exercised. Quarantine and exercised. People believed that the dancing was a curse brought about by St. Vitus. They responded by praying and making pilgrimages to places dedicated to St. Vitus. Prayers were also made to St. John the Baptist, who some believed also caused the dancing. Others claimed to be possessed by demons or Satan, and therefore exorcisms were often performed on dancers. Bartholomew notes that music was often played while participants danced, and that was believed to be an effective remedy. And during some outbreaks, musicians were even employed to play. Hey, given work to the artists. Right? Middleford describes how the music encouraged others to join in, however, and thus effectively made things worse, as did the dancing places that were sometimes set up. Numerous hypotheses have been proposed for the causes of dancing mania, and it remains unclear whether it was a real illness or a social phenomenon. One of the most prominent theories is that victims suffered from ergo poisoning, which was known as St. Anthony's fire in the Middle Ages. During floods and damp periods, ergos were able to grow and affect rye and other crops. Ergotism can cause hallucinations and convulsions, but cannot account for the other strange behavior most commonly identified with dancing mania. Other theories suggest that the symptoms were similar to encephalitis, epilepsy, and typhus, but as with ergotism, these conditions can't account for all the symptoms. Numerous sources discuss how dancing mania and tarantism may have simply been the result of stress and tension caused by natural disasters around the time, such as plagues and floods. Hetherington and Monroe describe dancing mania as a result of shared stress. Mm. People may have danced to relieve themselves of the stress and the poverty of the day, and in doing so, attempted to become ecstatic and see the visions. Another popular theory is that the outbreaks were all staged and that the appearance of strange behavior was due to its unfamiliarity. 
Religious cults may have been acting out well-organized dances in accordance with ancient Greek and Roman rituals. Despite being banned at the time, these rituals could be performed under the guise of uncontrollable dancing mania. Justice Hecker, a 19th century medical writer, described it as a kind of festival where a practice known as the kindling of the nodefer was carried out. This involved jumping through a fire and smoke in an attempt to ward off disease. Bartholomew notes how participants in this ritual would often continue to jump and leap long after the flames had gone. It's certain that many participants of dancing mania were psychologically disturbed, but it is also likely that some took part out of fear or simply wished to copy everyone else. Huh. Really, everybody else is doing it. Sources agree that dancing mania was one of the earliest recorded forms of mass hysteria, and it describes it as a psychic ep epidemic with numerous explanations that might account for the behavior of the dancers. It has been suggested that the outbreaks may have been due to cultural contagion triggers in times of particular hardship by deeply rooted popular beliefs in the region regarding angry spirits capable of inflicting a dancing curse to punish their victims. All I'm hearing is people were really stressed because the world felt like it was going to shit. And so they just tried to dance it out. And then everyone else was like, this is crazy. Slash, they don't know what happened. And then they revolted and ate the rich, right? So let's go. Let's have a wild dance party. Oh, let's go. Trip real hard let's on, have some, a wild dance on some party. mushrooms and eat the rich. Sounds great. Yeah. That's my story. When are we doing this? Tuesday? The, I wish I could do this the every dancing day. party and the It was like my vacation. Rich. I just didn't eat you rich people. Ugh. <laughs> Next vacation. Next vacation. Well, I want to thank you all for listening thank to our you. show and supporting our podcast. Uh, if you want to support us even more, which we would always love for you to do, you can totally support us regularly by signing up to be a patron of our Patreon. We have different tiers. We have bonus content, super cool stuff on there. You can buy merch from our website. That's also a great way to support our show. But there's also ways you can do it that don't cost you any money. And that number one way is to give us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts, on Spotify, on Google Play, Stitcher, SoundCloud, or anywhere where you listen to our podcast. Giving us a five-star review puts us in the algorithm and it lets other people know to check us out. Yes. And it's easy for you to do. So just do it. So just do it. Follow just us on Instagram, it. Dead Time Stories, all one word with a Z. Email us, deadtimestories at gmail.com. And those are all the things, man. That's it. That's it. I'm Stephanie. And I'm Sarah. And this has been Dead, Dead Time, Time Stories. Thanks for listening. Dead Time Stories is hosted by Sarah Heddens and Stephanie C. Curtison. Music and editing by Eric Gershnow. Artwork by Rennie Slackman. 